Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. We hope that you are encouraged by these messages and that God will continue to bless you. And now, today's sermon. Well, good morning. I'm so glad to be back with you this week to share God's Word. If you have a Bible, I hope that you do. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, as we look at this subject, the miracle and the message of this miraculous birth. The miracle and the message of this miraculous birth. We're going to read about God being with us. Uh, This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture as we think about Advent, the hope, the love, and the peace, and the joy, and the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. Last week, we looked at the first part of Matthew chapter 1, and there we went through the genealogy of Jesus. That is, it traces all the way back to Abraham. And we saw that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he shares his portion of the story of our Lord, he goes all the way back and wants to point out that God has had a plan all along to bring this Messiah. So with that said, I want us to read along, follow along, and I'll read it to you out loud. In Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read Matthew's account here, verses 18, and we'll go all the way down to the end of the chapter. Starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. This story is a miracle, the story of this virgin birth. Well, over the years, what has the church taught about the doctrine or the teaching of the virgin birth? Well, I went back as I was looking at this passage, and I said, well, let's see some of the statements of faith, some of the confessions, some of the ways that that the church tried to articulate this teaching that Jesus was born of Mary, who was a virgin, but she was conceived of the Holy Spirit, not by another man. Well, here's what the Apostles' Creed says. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. In about 325 A.D., this was a place called Nicaea, the Christians there got together. The church said, well, what, how do we make a statement talking about the virgin birth? Here's what they said. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, who for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, here it is, of the Virgin Mary. 
We'll fast forward even to the Protestants in the 1500s. Martin Luther said it this way in his, what he called his catechism, that is his teaching. He said, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. You see a pattern here, right? Go to 1689. You have a group of uh, Baptists in London, the Second London Confession of Faith. They said it this way. When the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, that is God in flesh, right? With all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. All the way up to the year 2000, my own background and my denomination, they say the same thing. Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, I go through those, and I could go through a bunch of others, but I want to simply say at the, at the out, if we, as we look at Matthew chapter 1, and as we see what Matthew teaches us about the doctrine or the teaching of the virgin birth, we see not only is it laid out in Scripture, but over the years, the church has affirmed that, right? Because it's God's Word. Well... In modern days, the picture is sort of different. Uh, one of our leaders, our founding fathers of our country, even said this, who, who was not necessarily uh, uh, a believer in all things in the Scripture. He said, The day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being in the womb of a virgin will be classified as a fable, like Minerva in the brain of Jupiter, sort of like the old Roman gods. He said, One day we're going to get so smart, basically, that we're not going to have to believe in this virgin birth business. Well, in the 1990s, there was another pastor who said it this way. He said, in time, the virgin birth account will be seen as a fable. And he said this. He said, the purpose was not to describe a literal event, but to capture the transcendent dimensions of God and the concepts of first century human beings. In other words, what he's saying is that it's not important whether or not the virgin birth happened you just kind of understand the intent of the message that God helps us and, and, and God's good to us kind of thing. Well, that's not what the Scriptures teach, is it? When you read this passage, I've heard it said, in fact, it's interesting, I've heard, I've heard some people who, be careful, don't get too smart. Let's don't be smarter than God, amen? But it's amazing to me sometimes how we try to do that. I've heard people say, well, in the first century, they didn't understand where babies come from. I don't think that's true. When you read this passage, I can guarantee you Joseph, when he thought through what he was trying to do, what was he doing? He says, well, I don't want to shame her in public, but I'm just going to divorce her quietly. Why? Because he knew good and well where babies came from. As, as Mary and Joseph struggled in their life, people around them, they knew where babies came from. That's why it was a challenge for them. So, so that's just silliness. The virgin birth is the backdrop for the rest of the story. It teaches us a lot of things. It's very similar to, how many of you have ever seen the classic Ebenezer Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, the TV TV shows? There's probably, goodness, there's a dozen movies. You could take your pick all the way back from, I believe, as early as the 20s on film, and even as modern, just the past couple of years. Well, I went back and I looked at Charles Dickens' original tale. Everything about that classic short story hinges on the fact that his... Ebenezer Scrooge's partner, Jacob Marley, he had to be dead, right? Because that's the whole story. Well, let me read to you what Dickens said in his story about Jacob Marley. He said, Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it. 
And Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know of my own knowledge where there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. But the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hand shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that Marley was as dead as a doornail. That's how Dickens starts his classic novel, his classic short story rather, A Christmas Carol. The rest of the story hinges on the fact that Marley was dead in that story. I would submit to you that in our story here, this true story that actually happened, everything else about Jesus hinges on the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. In fact, John Stott said it this way, and I like it. He said the incarnation, that is God becoming flesh, he said it was a historical and unrepeatable event with permanent consequences. So today as we look at this passage, as we think about the biblical teaching of the virgin birth, I want to do two things. The first thing I want to do is see what is God teaching us through the virgin birth. And then number two, how does God want us to respond to the virgin birth? So first, what is God teaching us through the virgin birth? Well, I believe in this passage and elsewhere in Scripture, we're going to see three things God teaches us primarily about the virgin birth. So what is God teaching us? Number one, it shows us that God, or excuse me, it shows us that Jesus is both divine and human. The first thing it teaches is that Jesus is both divine and human. We understand from Scripture that God is Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God has always existed. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always existed. But there came a very specific point in time when what happened? When God became flesh. John chapter 1 said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The virgin birth was a miracle. Look back at verse 18 in our passage in Matthew chapter 1. She was found with child by the Holy Spirit. That shows that Jesus was supernatural. Because that's not normally where babies come from or how it works, is it? This was a miracle. But it also shows that Jesus was human because he was born, just like everyone else. Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity pops up all through the stories of the Gospels. It shows in sometimes his humanity. For example, there's times in the Bible where Jesus says, I thirst. Think about that for a moment. When Jesus hung on that cross and he said, I thirst, the one who made the rivers thirsted. But he did because he was fully human. There's times in the scriptures where he ate. There's times in the scriptures where he slept. If you go to a chapter, we don't turn there, but I'll, I'll share it with you. If you go to Luke chapter 2 at the end of the chapter, it just simply says that Jesus grew in wisdom. That means he learned things. In stature, he physically grew like all little boys do. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. When Jesus was born, he was a regular little baby. In fact, I'll share this with you. As I've pastored over the years, I've always kind of 
had a little thing that at Christmas time, I always try to, if I'm doing the music or if somebody else is doing the music, and we sing Away in a Manger, which I love that little song, Away in a Manger, but I, 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 I have a little dig with the second verse. And here's how the second verse goes. It says, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. The little Lord Jesus, what? No crying he makes. Well, I wasn't there, obviously. None of us were there. But I'm just going to go on the fact that I've been around some babies. And sometimes what do babies do? They cry. So I got a little bit of, you know, I haven't took the time, I guess, to write a better song or to write a better verse. I'm just kind of complaining. But at the end of the day, I want us to understand Jesus was a regular baby. Babies cry. Now, he was without sin as he grew up, amen, but he was, he was fully human. One of my favorite places I see about Jesus being fully human, I can't help but think about it, is remember the story when he calmed the storm. In one of those stories, what was he doing at the bottom of the boat? He was asleep. Why was he asleep? Was he faking tiredness? Let me, let me act like I'm a human? No, he was physically tired, so he slept. And I can almost see the picture now. The storm comes, the disciples are are scared, and they wake him up. And I can just imagine Jesus rubbing his eyes and, and waking up, and then all of a sudden he reminds them that he's not just fully human. He's divine. Wakes up from his sleep, he's tired. Master, carest not that we perish, remember? And what does Jesus do? He says, peace, be still. There's his divinity and his humanity all rolled up into one. Jesus claims to be God himself. Remember in John uh, chapter 8, I believe it is, when he makes a statement about God could raise up sons of Abraham. And the, the Pharisees, who were his, his enemies at the time, said, you're not even you know, that old. How could you know anything about Abraham? And Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, <laughs> he said, I am. He was telling them something about who he was. He is, he is God. In fact, we know that that's how they took it because the Bible says that the Pharisees sought to kill him all the more because he was equating himself with God. The virgin birth is just like Marley being dead begins the story of the Christmas carol. The virgin birth sets the stage for you and I to understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man, both his divinity and his humanity. He's a real human, but without sin. Because he's a human, because he's a man, just like you and me, but also because he was sinless, son of God, he was able to be our sacrifice for our sin. So it shows Jesus is both divine and human, but the second thing that I think the virgin birth teaches us is number two, it shows that God keeps his promises. It shows that God keeps his promises. And to see this, I'm going to share with you throughout the Old Testament a couple of passages that I'm, just, I'm going to read to you and just remind you of, and, and they, they excite me to think about. It gets me excited to think about how God planned His great salvation for us all through time. When you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you don't have to turn to all these passages. If you want them after the service, I'll be glad to, to give you a copy. But if you turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God makes this great statement. He, sa he says the, the seed of the woman, that is Eve, is going is to have enmity between her and the seed of the serpent. And there's going to come a day when that seed of the serpent is going to crush that one's heel, but that that one who's going to come as the seed of woman is going to crush the serpent's 
head. That's a prophecy of something to come, isn't it? One day that serpent's going to be crushed. In Genesis chapter 12, he tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bless you. But through you, that is through Abraham, through his descendants, all the nations will be blessed. That's God keeping his promises. When, when, when we read about this baby who was born miraculously of the Virgin Mary, we see this is the fulfillment of what God said those thousands of years ago. Genesis 49 talks about him being of the tribe of Judah. Numbers 24 talks about the star that's going to come out of Jacob. Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, that's Jesus. Deuteronomy 18 talks about Moses being this great prophet, but in Deuteronomy 18, it talks about a prophet that's going to come that's greater than Moses. Well, here he is. 2 Samuel 7 talks about the son of David who will reign forever, whose kingdom will never end. Here he is, the son of David, Jesus. Psalm chapter 2 talks about the Lord's anointed. Psalm 22 talks about this righteous sufferer, the one who's going to suffer for, for others. Psalm 110 says he's the king priest. Isaiah 7.14 is the quote that Matthew used where he said, the virgin will conceive and you'll call his name Emmanuel. As Isaiah wrote that those hundreds of years ago, guess what? Matthew's letting us know this is what was spoken by the prophet. Isaiah 53 talks about one who is smitten, stricken, and afflicted for us, and by his stripes we are healed. Guess what? Here's the beginning of the story of the suffering servant of our Lord. Daniel chapter 7 talks about that great coming of the Son of Man. Well, here he is. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us something very specific, that this one's going to be born in Bethlehem. From you will come this one. God keeps his promises. Now let me ask a question to us today. If God can do all of that, the cares and concerns of the world that we have, do you think God can take care of those things as well? But if you're like me sometimes, I will wring my hands, and I will worry, and I will stay up, and I'll say, oh no, how's all this going to turn out? But when I think about the fact that God keeps his promises in all these things, and ultimately, as he has saved me from my sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, as he's made me his child, I can remember that God keeps his promises. He's the same God today who he was those thousands of years we just summarized. He keeps his promises. And the virgin birth teaches us that because this is the fulfillment of all those things as Jesus physically came to earth to be our redeemer. Well, the Bible teaches us, the virgin birth teaches us that Jesus is divine and human. It shows us God keeps his promises. But then number three, it teaches us that Jesus saves us and is with us. This passage, this virgin birth, teaches us that Jesus, number three, saves us and is with us. It teaches us that salvation is from the Lord. It says here in the, in the same chapter, look at verse number 21, you'll bear a son and the angel in the dream called, told him to call his name Jesus for what? He will save his people from their sins. One pastor said it this way, and I liked it. You cannot conceive what happened on the cross fully without understanding who was conceived in the womb. God's with us. We get that from Isaiah 7, 14. He is with us. He, he, he is named Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. That tells us 
who God is, who He is. Who is it that's with us? It's God. But the name Jesus goes back to the Hebrew Yeshua. That means God saves. So in this passage, we see two things. It teaches us about God. Number one, who He is. It's God who's with us. But then number two, what He does. He saves us. Jesus, the Lord saves. Emmanuel, God is with us. It teaches us that God saves and that God is with us. And the angel tells that to Joseph in this passage. Well, those are the three things that I believe the virgin birth teaches us. But then the question becomes, well, how do you and I respond to the virgin birth? As as we hear this story, number one, I think we believe it because it's in God's word. But then number two, how do we... How do we respond to that? What, is, there, is there something God is teaching us? Well, I believe there's two actions that we could take, two responses we can make that I think will help us to respond to the teaching of the virgin birth, and that is this. Number one, respond with humility. Respond with humility. I want you to think about the humility of Joseph and Mary. As the Gospel of Luke primarily talks about Mary, we learn about her and we learn about Joseph, that they were righteous people. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, Mary calls herself a servant of the Lord. Remember, she says, Behold, the servant of the Lord, may it be according to your word. We respond with humility. We respond recognizing we are humbled as we think about what great thing God did for us. And we think about humility. What could be more humble than coming as a human in human flesh and a baby? I want you to turn, and we'll come back to Matthew in just a second. I think this is the only passage I'll have you turn to this morning besides our main passage. But if you'll go to Philippians chapter 2, I want to share something with you that I believe helps us see this idea of humility and I believe will help us. He said it this way. Look at verse 5 in Philippians chapter 2, or I'll simply read it to you. Paul is talking about he wants his the people in Philippi to have humility. And here's his example. He gives Jesus as an example. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What he means, what he's saying, is that Jesus was God, and the fact that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Paul is saying, Although Jesus was God in the flesh, it says in verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Does this mean that Jesus stopped being God? Absolutely not. He was fully God. But he intentionally left the glories of heaven. He, almost like he voluntarily tied his hands behind his back, so to speak, if you want to put it that way. He He emptied himself to take the form of a servant. The creator of all things, the one who created water, thirsted. The one who created life, voluntarily died. The the one who made it all, gave it all up. The one who had it all said, I didn't come here to be served, I came here to serve. He is the epitome of humility. Babies are totally dependent on someone else. Babies require other people. Jesus came and became a baby for us. He became a man. It is the ultimate example of humility. Look at the rest of the passage here in verse 
verse 7, he said, He emptied himself, Philippians 2, 7, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you and I have humility as we think about the story of Christmas? It is very easy for us to get sidetracked at the holidays and get caught up in all kinds of things. But I encourage us to take time and say, like Mary, we're your servants. May we just simply do according to your word. So number one, we respond with humility, I think, to the story of the virgin birth. But number two, we simply respond with obedience. We simply respond with obedience. When you read about the story of Joseph, you find that the Bible says that they were betrothed. Some translations say espoused. Typically in our culture today, a little more informally, I think, than they did in the first century, is when two people want to get married, they'll get engaged. Well, they'll get engaged, and typically in our tradition, that means they're wearing a ring and they're going to get married later, right? Well, there's no, nothing legal that's taking place yet. We don't have any legal transactions in our culture typically until what? Until somebody like me or whoever is the official signee will sign the paper and we have a ceremony in front of people and then they're married. Well, in the first century, most marriages, first of all, were arranged. But also, as Mary and Joseph were espoused or betrothed, this was a legal contract. For even though they hadn't had sexual relations yet at this point, for Joseph to put away his wife, that's why it says he was going to put her away quietly, it would have taken a, basically like, a, like, a, like what we would think of as a divorce. But what you see Joseph, first of all, you see his righteousness. You know, he, could have, he could have easily shamed her. He could have easily wanted to punish her. But he said, you know, I'm going I'm to be, be a just man. But then after he heard from God in this dream, what does Joseph do? He says, the Bible says he took Mary to be his wife. When you read about Mary... In Luke chapter 1, what do you find? You find this young girl who simply says, let it be according to your word. Joseph and Mary just simply obeyed. I don't want to share this with you and we'll close. When you think about this, the message and the story of, of the virgin birth and you think about this message of Christmas, which we'll talk more about next week, but sometimes we think about Mary and Joseph, and, and, and we, rightly so, we think highly of them, and I think we should. And we think of them as great heroes in many ways because of their great faith and their obedience. But I can't help but think, if I put myself in the shoes of this young couple during the time, it was simply a time for them, I'm sure, of uncertainty, not knowing what tomorrow holds, not knowing what people are going to think, but simply when faced with a call of God on their life to have that simple obedience. For you and I, I can't help but think, sometimes it's easy to think that we're not part of big things. We're just kind of living our life. But I would encourage all of us to remember that God is at work all around us. And that when I think about Advent and I think about the coming, guess what? We know the rest of the story. We know Jesus has come. And we know he ascended to heaven, but we also know that he's coming again. I can't help but think that the best thing you and I could do during the Christmas season is to recommit ourselves to live a life of just simple humility and obedience. 
and wake up every day and say, God, whatever you need me to do, I'm yours. I simply want to trust you, and what you say to me is true, and I want to obey. My hope and prayer is we can do that this Christmas. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, the angel said to call him Jesus, you save us. He's the fulfillment of Emmanuel, you're with us. God, you're still with us today. God, you still save us today. I pray that we would live lives that are pleasing to you as we strive to follow your example of humility, follow your example of obedience, recognizing that this great teaching in Scripture of the virgin birth reminds us of who you are, God who became flesh to save us from our sins. What a great Savior you are. God, bless our people today. Bless us as we go this week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.